Uh, there's quite a few around. And I'd love you to turn to Mark chapter 11 on page 1016. Mark chapter 11. And when you found Mark chapter 11, I'm sorry if this is uh, confusing, I'd like you also to find 1 Kings chapter 8 and stick something in it, a piece of paper or something, (laughs) not like your nose. Um, uh, So 1 Kings chapter 8 is on page 345. 1 Kings 8, 3, 4, 5, and Mark 11. You're going to need 1 Kings 8 a couple of times. I thought it would just save time if we found it now. Um, terrific. Let's start, by, let's start by reading this passage. And let me just say, don't get hung up on the fig tree, all right? Don't panic about the fig tree. We'll, we'll come back to it. So one king, uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Here we go. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I wonder if you've ever um, thought about the idea that God has a dream. That God has a a vision. That when God made the world, it wasn't like, I'll make this thing and we'll see how it turns out. But that as God created this world, he created it for a purpose, with a vision, with a dream. Then maybe this will help, okay? Imagine, uh, Imagine Mozart. Okay, he's, he's pretty good, right, at music. And so Mozart, when he starts to write a piece of music, he doesn't just chuck the notes together and say, well, we, okay, we'll have a B flat and an F, and we'll put those together, and we'll, you know, we'll just see how it turns out. Now, actually, my, my guess is, and I'm, I, I, I know that I'm skating on potentially thin, dangerous ice, but my guess is that Mozart, as he's creating this, there is a... There's a vision. There's a, there's a, he can almost hear, already hear what 
he's writing. In his head, you can imagine him as he writes the notes thinking, oh, yes, that's beautiful. No, it's not being played. He, he can hear it in, in, in its potentiality. He can see this thing that he's making. I wonder if you can see that that is how God creates with a sort of an excitement at the potential of what he's making. Now, imagine Mozart, okay? He works for 10 years on the most staggeringly beautiful piece of music that he ever created, whatever that might be. And he's so, he's so wonderfully taken up with this music. He's so excited about this music. What does he do with his music? He takes it and he entrusts it, right? He gives it to an orchestra for them to perform. And they take what he has created and what he has envisioned and they take it and they begin to rehearse with it. Can you imagine Mozart kind of like how it's going. And then the day of the performance comes. Now, I'm sure this never actually happened, okay? <laughs> Just give me some license. <laughs> and the day of the performance comes, and Mozart goes for the very first time to hear his music being performed. And as he gets near to the concert hall, it's in the, it's in the most spectacular concert hall ever, the most beautiful place. As he gets to the concert hall, he notices that all around the concert hall, there's like tables and crowds and piles of stuff, like Mozart mugs and T-shirts and Mozart flags. And everybody's shouting, buy your Mozart stuff! <laughs> and it's very difficult to get through. You can probably see, you may see where this is going. Very difficult to get through. And then he finds that it's very difficult to get in. Because it's so expensive. There's this massive price. He's being charged £1,000 to get in, to hear his piece of music, right? And he comes, eventually he gets right into the concert hall. He sits down. And as the orchestra begin to play, they've completely screwed up. They're not even playing what he wrote. They've taken what he wrote and they've like scribbled bits out and they've kind of smashed each other over the head with their violins and having a laugh. And it's just like... And they're all fighting, one squabbling, going, I want that bit. And they're kind of like fighting over one another. Right, here's my question. It was a long illustration. <laughs> here's my question. Does Mozart have the right at that moment to be upset? Does he have the right to be angry? Of course he does. Can't you feel the pain that that would cause him? The, the beautiful potential of the vision that he was writing has been totally trashed by the people that he entrusted it to. God has a vision. A beautiful, majestic vision. And when Jesus comes to the temple, the people it's been entrusted to have trashed it. That's why Jesus is angry. That's why Jesus, in this 
passage in Mark's gospel does some things that we think, whoa, that's not very Jesus-y. And what I want to try and do this afternoon is two things. Firstly, I want to show you the vision that they trashed. And secondly, I want to show you that Jesus doesn't just come and trash the, and, and, and tell them all off. He comes to reestablish the vision. God's vision. So let's, let's get into the story, okay? With, with all that kind of in your mind, um, let's try, try and uh, have a look at the story. Right, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. That's odd, isn't it? He's the son of God, right? The eternal son of God. He's hungry. What's he doing being hungry? Well, he's hungry because he became a man. And, and real men get hungry, right? I do. I, I, I know that doesn't absolutely nail the case, but, you know, best I can manage. He's hungry, okay? Ah, oh, okay. And so he, he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. And he went to find out if it had any fruit. But when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Has anyone got a problem with that? No? Okay, great. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> it sounds a bit weird. This, it sounds like Jesus is having a really bad day. I'm hungry. I'm grumpy. Huh, you got no figs? Right, fine. Stuff you. Never gonna eat, no one's ever going to eat figs from you again. That would be a complete misunderstanding. And particularly because we, we particularly feel sorry for the fig tree. And we almost kind of could start a fig tree appreciation society that says, well, bless its heart. It wasn't the season. <laughs> Mark tells us it wasn't the season for figs. This is very unreasonable and very hard on the fig tree, Jesus. <laughs> right, what is going on in this story? I want to suggest that it has very little to do with fig trees. I want to suggest it has a lot to do with what happens next. What Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples for what he's about to do. You may say, oh, that sounds a bit weird. Okay, don't worry about turning. Well, you can turn to it if you want, if you can find it. Um, Turn to Hosea. (laughs) You can just listen if you want. This is what God says in Hosea chapter 9. It's on page 970 if you want to check what I'm saying. It's very important that you check what I'm saying. I'm not making it up. In Hosea chapter 9, look what God says. 9 verse 10. God says this. When I found Israel, so God's remembering when he first found this people, this nation of Israel who God called to be his own. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. In other words, Israel is pictured as being like a fig tree. One of the pictures that's used quite a few times in the Old Testament. So that's a clue. And I think there's a clue here as well as to why Jesus does this thing with the fig tree. You see, it talks here about the early fruits on the fig tree. Now, look, I'm not a great gardener. I don't really care about gardens. That's why I live in central London. And, and if you read some of the books on this passage, you just get long, kind of the botanical life of the fig tree. <laughs> but my basic understanding is this, right? When the fig tree comes into leaf, there is an early fruit. Not the figs, but an early fruit. 
which is edible, like it talks about in Hosea. And so Jesus has a realistic expectation of finding some early fruit on this fig tree. And it has the appearance of it, look at me, I've got leaves, I've got leaves. And Jesus gets there and there's no fruit. In other words, there's an appearance that isn't matched by the reality. But remember, okay, don't get hung up on the fig tree. It's only a fig tree. It doesn't matter, okay? Because what Jesus is doing is he's showing what he's going to do in the temple. Because remember, the fig tree is a picture of God's people Israel. So let's crack on now to see what happens in the temple. And hopefully the fig tree stuff might become clearer. So Jesus moves on from the fig tree now. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling, and would not allow anyone to carry his proper cross, right? There's stuff going on in the temple. He doesn't like it to the point where he just drives it all out, turns the tables over, causes mayhem. It's pretty dramatic. Right, verse 17 is the key. And as he taught them, he said... Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Right, here it is. That's the vision. God has a vision, a dream. His dream was that this temple, well, let's look at it. We're going to break it down to three bits, right? Firstly, can you see God's vision is that it will be a house, A house. Why is the temple called a house? In fact, not just a house. God says it's my house. Why? Right, okay. Let's back up. Let's do a little bit of uh, big picture thinking for a second. All right? Where does God live? Where's God's house? God lives in heaven. Right? Everybody knows God lives in heaven. That's his house. Happy time. Having a happy time in heaven. True. That's true. Except that what you discover in the Bible is that the God who lives in heaven comes to live on earth. In fact, he says, I am going to, I want to come and dwell. I want to come and live on earth. And so God tells his people to build a house, a temple. It will be my house. Right. This is right. If you think if you're not a Christian or if you're not not sure about what the Bible says or if you're not sure about anything. Loads of people think that God is this kind of distant, far away from a distance. He's watching us and he's kind of out there somewhere and he's very distant. And if, you know, there's a force and maybe if I try really hard and I shout loud enough, he might be able to hear me. No, no, no. The Bible says that God comes to live with us. So we often say that being a Christian is about how you get to heaven when you die. Mm, No, the Bible's more interested about how God comes to live with us, not how we go to live in heaven. Oh, that was a big question. That was a big thing. I haven't got time to do all that now. We'll do that another time. God comes to live, right? It's his house. Here's the first part of God's vision. God's vision. You have to understand this. God's vision as he created this world. The first part of his vision was, I'm going to live there. That is God's plan. As God creates this symphony, as he writes this fantastic concerto of creation, what is he making? He is making a place where he plans to live. Not a little plaything. Well, he sits in heaven. No, my house, my house. 
And that was always what the temple was supposed to be. And that is why, for the next couple of weeks, uh, next few weeks in Mark's Gospel, this next chunk of Mark, chapters 11 and 12, we've called the house that God built. It's all in the temple. It's his house. He lives there. Now, that's a pretty intimate relational thing, isn't it? If I invite you to my house... That says something about what I want. That says something about a relationship. God is so intimately involved in his creation that he comes to live here. Now, don't get confused. Right? He's not part of creation. He's above creation. He created all things, and yet he comes to live in creation. He comes to dwell in his house, in his temple. So the first part of his vision was that it would be his house, his dwelling place. Second part, the house of prayer. In other words, the key distinctive of this temple that they build, and eventually they build it, a man called Solomon builds it, he builds this big thing, lots of gold, lots of walls, <laughs> obviously, and, uh, but the big distinctive of it is that it will be a house of prayer. Okay, now we need 1 Kings 8, which you already have ready, I hope. 1 Kings 8. And um, I want you to see, have a look. Look at this, right? When Solomon finishes building the temple, he prays this fantastic prayer. I want you to see what he thinks the temple's all about. So from verse 22, okay? Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continually hold wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant, David, my father. With your mouth you've promised and with your hand you've fulfilled it as it is today. Uh, then there's some more. Jump down to verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? You see, that's what it was about. The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord, my God. Hear the cry and prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your, listen to it, right? This is what the temple's about. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you have said my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray to you towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath, and they come and swear the oath before, before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Jump down to verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive. Verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because the people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this... You see, it's all pray. When the people pray towards this place... The temple is all about God's house of prayer, the place where people pray. And wherever they are, they can pray towards this temple. It's the focus of their prayers. This is God's vision. God's vision for his world is that it will be a place where he lives and where people speak to him. People call upon him. People pray to him. 
That's the vision. That's what God is. That's what the temple was all about. So it's a house of prayer. Here we go. Third part of the vision for all nations. It was for all nations. So go back to 1 Kings 8. Sorry if you thought that was it and have accidentally removed your thing, uh, which I have. 1 Kings 8. Check out what verse 41. Have a look at verse 41. This is, this is incredible. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then ignore them. They don't matter. You can forget them because it's all about Israel. No, God, it's then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. It was always God's vision that the temple would be a dwelling place, a house of prayer for all nations, that anyone from all the whole world would be able to know God because of this place. That's God's vision. Now, we've lost this, okay? We, we, we don't, because the temple is so distant in, in history now, we don't feel the, the seriousness of this. One place, one place on earth where God says, this is what it's all about. And even the way the temple was laid out, you know, there was the middle bit, which is the most holy place. Then there was another bit called the holy place. And then there was a bit where the, the priests could go. And then there was another bit. And then there was a bit where the, the foreigners could come. It was all supposed to be Welcome, come, come, come to God, all the nations. So there's the vision, okay? So here is Jesus, right? Imagine Mozart. Here is Jesus walking towards the temple. Let's see what they've done with my vision. This magnificent vision. It's like Jesus is hungry to be satisfied by his vision. So he walks towards the temple. And what does he find? What does he find in the outer courts? The bit that was supposed to be for the nations. It's rammed full of market stalls and money changes. That was the point where the nations were supposed to come. But they can't anymore. They can't come. Because the temples pushed them out. It's become a den of robbers. Now, that quote comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Don't worry about turning to it now, but it's a, it was a time when God's people, they were turned in on themselves. They, they weren't looking outward. They were turned in on themselves. They were desperately trying to make themselves feel safe. And they'd run around. Okay, this is what they'd do. They'd run around doing bad stuff. You know, so I'd run over and I'd punch Trevor and, you know, and we'd have a fight and Trevor would be on the floor and, and all that stuff. And then we'd go, but it's okay because we've got the temple. The temple? We're okay because of the temple. And they were treating it like a lucky charm. They've trashed the vision. It's all become about them. It's all become inward looking. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can... I don't know how, how to convey to you the emotional reaction that I must have provoked in Jesus. 
You know, we can't just sit here and go, oh, that's a shame. This is, this is the vision. The vision for all the peoples to come and meet with God in this place. And it's being trashed and destroyed. Is Jesus right to be angry? Of course he is. And actually, verse 18, we just discover that the, the leaders in the temple, they just look for a way to kill Jesus. The crowd, they're fascinated, but they're looking at the leaders, they look for a way to kill him. Such is their hatred. So here is Mozart coming right into the concert hall. And, they, and he gently says, listen, stop killing each other with violence. It, it doesn't quite go like that. I, I don't want to be rude. Can I tell you how it's supposed to go? And the violinists look at him and say, who, who do you think you are? What right have you got to come and tell us what to do? And they turn on the very one who wrote it. Can't you see? Okay, we might say, well, what, I mean, what on earth has this got to do with us? Who cares? We're not Jews, we're not in the temple, nothing. Right, have a look at what happens next. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the root. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree you cursed has withered. The fig tree, the temple, the fig tree. Why? Because the temple is, a, because the temple is facing God's curse. This house that was to be a house of prayer for all nations, which has been trashed, is now under God's curse. And just a few years later, it will be destroyed. bit depressing. Okay, here comes the great bit, right? And we're going to finish the sermon with this fantastic restatement of the vision of God. It's the same vision. Jesus restates it. So have a look down, right? Okay. If you, by the way, if you fall asleep, this is the good bit, all right? You've set, you might as well wake up now because you've listened to the, the depressing bit. This is the good bit, okay? Look what Jesus says. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. You can almost imagine, you know, the disciples kind of like, you're telling us that the temple's over, under God's curse? Well, how are we going to relate to God? I, I thought that God was living with us. I thought we could pray to him. I thought, how can we relate to him now? Jesus says there's a better vision now. Better than the temple ever was. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts and believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe, pray, pray. You see, Jesus says you just pray. You can still pray. You've got to feel what good news that is. It's not over. Despite the fact that humanity has taken God's good creation and has trashed it and spoiled it and spat in his face, it's not over. There is still a way to pray. You can still pray, Jesus says. That's good news. You can still pray. Here is the great restatement. see, when Jesus comes, we're told in a number of places that Jesus is God come to live on earth. Does that sound familiar to you? 
is God come to live on earth, right? Here he is, the one who came to live in the temple. Now it's not about the temple because now there's a man, a real human being who gets hungry. A real man. Now he is God standing with his feet on the earth. Here is the new temple. God's dwelling places in Jesus. You can meet with God. So do we pray towards a building? No. Because the building's over. It's not the building anymore. The building was just a little picture. It was only a model. It's now about Jesus. You know, when I was a kid, I had little, you know, I had little Ferrari toy car that I used to drive around. You know, I'd, I'd drive it around. It was like, it was really cool and I loved it. And then I got a real car. Not a Ferrari. But I got a real car. And it would be really weird if, if I was given this new car and I said, oh, that's great, but I, I like my model better. That's... No, 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 no. That's the temple. It's just a model. It was, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But it was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus who now is God dwelling on earth. Jesus who is God's house. Jesus who is the place of prayer. Je- Jesus who is for all the nations. Anyone can come. Anyone can come to Jesus. And the staggering thing about Jesus is we're going to watch him go and die on a cross. And his death on the cross is because of what I've done to God's vision. The way I've twisted and distorted it. Jesus takes that punishment. So now you can pray. You can be in relationship. You don't need a building. You have Jesus. Oh, but hang on a second. We need to push one step forward. And through Jesus, what do you discover then? This temple language goes on. It goes on past Jesus to another thing. You know what that is? It's you. It's us. The church sitting here today. The church is called the temple of God. Not the building, you'll be glad to know. Not the building. But the people of God are called the temple. Okay, what's the temple? Come on, what's the vision for the temple? It's to be a house. Don't worry, Dan, to do it with me. Unless you want to. A house of prayer for all the nations. What is church supposed to be? It's supposed to be a house where God dwells among us by his spirit. Where does God live today? Here. Don't you understand? If people want to meet God today, they have to go to church. That's where he is. Among his people. A house where God dwells. A house of what? Of prayer. Where we call upon him. Have a look what Jesus says. Oh man, I hope these words bother you. Go, if anyone says this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. That worry you? It bothers us, doesn't it? And then he goes on, he makes it worse. By the way, just in case I wasn't being clear, I'll say it again. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. That's a bit dangerous, isn't it, Jesus? 
Because what if I pray for Ferrari? This is so obvious, right, when you see it. What were they doing? What was the mistake? What was the big mistake in the first temple? They excluded the outsiders and they were turned in on themselves. Let me tell you this. This is not a promise that we can pray for whatever we want. This is a promise that we can pray that God would move a mountain, save the world, bring in the nations and bring many, many people to Jesus. That's what this is a promise for. It's a promise that turns outward. It's a promise that pushes us out to the nations to say, Heavenly Father, won't you pour out your spirit on the city of London? Won't you pour out your spirit and save people and open eyes? That's the prayer. That's the mountain that can be moved by the powerful, uh, by the powerful word of Jesus. Honestly, if we make this into, oh yes, it's all about us, well, what could I get? Jesus will come to us and will destroy this temple, just like he destroyed the first one. It's not what it's about. It's not about us. And my, you know, I'm very challenged and I'm so excited about next Saturday when we're going to talk a lot about prayer. Because I think most of my praying, and I don't know about yours, I pray about molehills. I pray about molehills. I'm not praying mountain-moving prayers. I'm not praying that God would do mountainous things. And I think it's because I, I pray what I think God might be able to manage. I pray what seems reasonable to me. I pray what seems possible. Surely we, we all know what this is like, right? I, I, I'll only pray what I think is achievable. And Jesus says you should be praying the mountains would be moved. Let's pray. Let's pray with big vision. Let's pray outward looking prayers. Not about ourselves. Not about, oh, please make Globe Church big. Shut Who cares? Bring the nations to Christ. Bring the nations to glory. That's the sort of prayers we need to be praying with a passion and a, and a power that comes from the Spirit, that we would pray. And if you ask those prayers, you can be sure that you will receive it. It will be yours. That is what God is doing in the world. Let's pray these prayers. And then verse 25 at the very end there, look. All this is picking up the temple language. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. We've run out of time. I've I've got too excited and haven't managed to do my time properly. But the basic point is, it's a place of welcome, a place of forgiveness, a place where we have community, a place where we love each other. Not a place where people are shut out. And so let me say this as explicitly as I can. If you are not a Christian, if you're not trusting Jesus then I invite you, I welcome you to come now to God's house, to come to this king and find forgiveness. To join a community of people who are really, really screwed up, who make all sorts of mistakes, who get all sorts of wrong, but we are committed to forgiving each other. 
and we're committed to loving Jesus together. Let's wind right back to the beginning. God's vision for this world is that he would dwell among us and that all the nations would come to him and cry and call upon his name. That's a good vision. And it's the vision where the Bible ends. In Revelation 21, now the dwelling of God is with man. God comes to live on earth and all the nations come to this King Jesus. Our vision is so small. Let's give up on molehills. Let's stop praying molehill prayers. Let's pray. Let's pray that God might be willing even to use us in all our smallness that we might capture a sense of this vision and we might give our lives for it. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, um, wow, your vision for this world is so wonderful. Your house of prayer for all nations. And Father, through Jesus, you've called us to be part of that. We are now your temple. That's mind-blowing. And we want to ask your forgiveness for all the times when church has become like a den of robbers, where we're turned in on ourselves, where we have no concern for those outside, where, where we're just looking at one another and having a nice happy time. Father, we pray that you drive us out. Pray that we would plead with you, that we would be a church that knows what it is to pray, that you would move mountains, that you would do the impossible, that you would save millions around this world. Even today, this day, as your gospel is preached around this world, would lives be transformed, we pray. Oh, Father, give us a bigger vision of what we're involved in. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.